1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss. Equity lines.
0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Equity.
2: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Alec or Ren and today I'm not joined by my equity buddy Bryce. He is on leave, some well-deserved leave and it's just me today. But what an episode we have. I sat down with... Kirill Sokolov, who is the founder and chairman of 13 d Research. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Kirill or 13-Day Research, uh, they are advisors to some of the biggest and best performing pools of capital in the world. To give you a sense of the quality of their research, uh, here's what Stan Druckenmiller, the billionaire investor, has to say about Kirill. Quote, I want to just say that I don't think I've had a more important advisor than Kirill over the last few decades. So I was lucky enough to sit down with Kirill and unpack his journey uh, building 13D and forecasting market trends and changes. And then we get into what's happening in markets today because there's a lot going on and... We unpack the US and China. We unpack where the next leg of global growth is going to come from. We talk about India and Indonesia uh, and Australia's unique place in all of it. So this is a far ranging and fascinating chat about a lot of the, I guess, shifting economic winds and geopolitical trends that will impact our lives and I guess our portfolio's performance over the decades to come. One quick bit of housekeeping before we get into it. You may have seen or heard that we have announced our new book, Don't Stress Just Invest. It is available for pre-order now and it will be hitting shelves on the 22nd of August. For Bryce and I, we've been doing this podcast and building Equity Mates for 6 years, speaking to, you know, hundreds of experts over the journey, and we still find ourselves asking, what is enough? when it comes to investing, the more you learn, the more opportunities you realize are there, the more asset classes you're exposed to, you constantly feel like you have to do more, save more, invest more, find more. And that feeling can be pretty overwhelming. And so we sat down and and did the work and wrote this book to really understand what is enough when it comes to investing. So to find out more, the links will be in the show notes or you can head to equitymates.com and there's more information there. Um, but would love it if you got around the pre-orders of the book. So with that said, let's get to this interview with Kirill. And just a reminder before we do that while we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any advice is general advice only. Always do your own research and seek personal advice if you feel like you need it. So with that said, let's get to my interview with Kirill Sokolov, chairman and founder of 13 Day Research. Kirill Sokolov, welcome to Equity Mates. Pleasure to be here. So, Kirill, I want to start with the story of 13D Research, the company that you founded, and then get into where we are uh, in markets today and perhaps where to from here. So, to start with, can you take us back to 1983? Uh, what led you to start 13D Research?
0: I had what now appears like a very obvious idea, but at the time was was a pretty original idea. And that was to study the investments of the people who made the most money. Uh, you know, it sounds obvious, but at the time, it was, it was, oh, wow, that's a great idea. And the 13D filing with the SEC is a very, very good disclosure document. It requires uh, filing within five business days after you take a 5% position, and it discloses uh, your average investment price Price you paid, transactions over the last sixty days, and your investment intentions. And stocks were extremely cheap because inflation was was double digit, interest rates were double digit. so stocks were selling at twenty percent of breakup. So there were a lot of freight investors who were taking big positions. And I became uh, really the world's expert on thirteen d filings. And uh, the rest is history. And we had one hundred and seventy of our companies were taken over. And at the same time, I was very bullish on financial assets because I was one of the few people who thought that inflation was peaking and that the interest rates are going to, you know, go down for decades. And I wrote a book called Is Inflation Ending? Are you ready? And the other good thing that happened was the SEC changed the way that independent research could, could be created. You could allocate. Uh, brokerage commissions using soft dollars. So you put all those three together and we were very lucky to be in the right place at the right time.
2: And I think uh, in the decades since you started 13D Research, you've built a reputation for accurately forecasting the stock market and and making predictions, which is perhaps one of the hardest things to be good at when it comes to uh, the stock market. So for people that aren't familiar with 13D, maybe can you take us... uh, through the last four decades, and some of the more notable predictions? And maybe are there any that you're particularly proud that you got right?
0: Well, you're very nice to ask. Of course, there were a lot of mistakes along the way, but getting the big trend right is, is key. So I got the disinflation trend right. You now when you start off with equities, price-to-earnings ratio is extremely compressed, and you start to lower it interest rates because inflation is is coming down and interest rates are coming down. You're going to have a phenomenal bull market in equities, and that's what what I have written about. I just thought it was going to be a fantastic 20 years. Uh, I was in, in China at the opening up in, in 1992. I was in Shenzhen when uh, Deng went there and said to be rich is glorious, and I was known as the... First Westerner to bring Western portfolio managers uh, to China. And we were there and the market went up sixfold in two and a half or three years. It was just phenomenal. I read a little squib in the Wall Street Journal in 1988, and it said that it took 70 years to put a landline system into the UK, 50 years into the US, 30 years Japan, 20 years South Korea, but you could put a mobile phone system in in a year and a half. And the light bulbs went off in my my head, I foresaw the emerging, the emerging market boom and opening up of, of communications globally and all of information and all human knowledge available to all of humanity. Just with that one little paragraph, we became extremely bullish on, on technology and disruption. In 2002, having been bearish on oil for 20 years, having had no interest whatsoever. I noticed that commodity prices, despite a global recession, were actually starting to inch up. It's my theory of anomaly. What should be happening isn't, and what isn't happening should be. So I started thinking, if commodities are going up in a recession, what happens when the recovery happens? And I read this book by tend to phase called Hubbard's Peak, which essentially is arguing the case that uh, there would be peak peak oil production. So oil was at 20, and having been bearish for 20 years, I became the biggest bull on the planet on oil, and we rode it all the way up to June of 2008 at 143.50. So those are the key moments. I guess in September 2020, we saw uh, a shift coming in leadership from prior leaders to a new set of leaders, regime change. is going to be inflation sensitive, hard assets, uh, value, the whole sector that had underperformed for 10 or 12 years. So those are the, those are the key recollections.
2: Now, now, you mentioned there that you didn't get everything right. Uh, are there any that stick out in your mind as, as ones that you've got wrong? And I guess the, the key question is when you look back on those, are there any key analytical mistakes that you made at that time that you've sort of internalized and added to your process going forward?
0: Well, I spend way too much time analyzing my mistakes. Uh, there was this great martial artist in China who became the best in the world without ever competing against anybody. But instead of analyzing his mistakes, he analyzed his winners. And so I, I do both. You know, why did I get this right? Why did I miss, miss that? I think I tend to be too focused because I want to know as much as possible about something. And if I'm not as knowledgeable as anybody, then I don't want to do it. A lot of my mistakes have been errors of omission. I used to have an apartment in New York City on 57th and Park, and I was a huge reader of books. And there was a Borders bookstore in the basement. And you know, by the time you take the elevator down, and then you, you go down a few more stairs, and then you, you look for the book, and then you stand in line, and that was 30 minutes. But I read that Amazon was going to be selling books online. So I became literally one of Amazon's first customers. This is 96, 97. And I believed in e-commerce. I thought the bricks and mortar was over, but I never bought the stock. (laughs) One of my colleagues, father was an expert on technology in 1988. Not too long after Microsoft had gone public. He came into our office and gave us a phenomenal case. I can still remember how Microsoft was going to own the world because of its monopoly on the desktop. And I didn't buy the stock. So there are a lot of stories, stories like that.
2: I want to uh, pick your brain on stock market predictions a little bit because, you know, you, uh, as we've sort of covered, you've built a reputation as a really good market forecaster. But I think uh, financial media as a whole... Has a habit of making a lot of stock market predictions. A lot of them are wrong, and there's not really a lot of accountability for the talking heads that go on to CNBC and tell us, you know, what, what's going to happen. So, when you're listening or reading predictions from other people, how do you approach those predictions? Uh, how do you value them, and how do you assess the people making them?
0: We are focused on themes. We don't really make stock market predictions. We'll make an asset allocation decision. We'll say, we think that this sector is going to do well. We'll think that this country is going to do well. That's, that's a preferred way of doing it for us. I think that there's way too much uh, forecasting. I mean, I don't have any idea what the S&P will be. You know, I I can make a case it's going to be down 30%. I can make a case it's going to keep grinding higher, but it isn't central to, to what we're doing. You know, we have a lot of great investment themes that mostly are uh, solutions to economic problems. We like green energy, uh, we like copper, we happen to like gold, we like natural resources, we like food security, Um, you know, we like India, we like uh, Middle East. They are driven by factors that we can analyze. The stock market per se is really a liquidity game. And what will the central banks do? So you look at uh, silicon valley bank and you, you think banking crisis this is bad <laughs> it was it wasn't because the fed flooded the market with liquidity then you have the the debt ceiling deal was negotiated and resolved good news no it's bad news because the treasury now has to sell a lot of debt so it's really a liquidity analysis game and the people who are the best study that. But it's very complicated if you've got all these different central banks and the ways of adding liquidity that are hidden and subtle and not easy to monitor. You know, it's not just like looking at a central bank, but bouncing other complicated factors to evaluate.
2: So in your history at 13 Day, you've been advising some of the best investors in the world, including Stanley Druckenmiller, a name a lot of our listeners would be familiar with. What have you learned from some of these great investors? And in particular, are there any traits or habits that you see uh, that are common in these great investors that we could all try and emulate to become better investors ourselves?
0: Well, I think one, I mean, Stan is unique. I mean, he, he's, to say he's a genius uh, under rates his, his ability. He believes something somewhere which will make an asset prices go up. And uh, that's what excites him and still keeps him engaged, but he's incredibly flexible. And there's a story about Stan and George Soros, who I know very well. So Stan was running uh, Soros fund and he was running his own hedge fund that he was running his own portfolio and then George was running George's portfolio. And Stan noticed that George's portfolio was doing vastly better than all of the others. So he started (laughs) studying what was George doing? And he noticed that George was, was doing exactly what he was doing. He just took bigger bets. So, I mean, we all know that Warren Buffett's uh, look at a great business. Uh, right now, he's investing in free cash flow. There's a lot of free cash flow businesses out there. Your own BHP, I have a client of mine, and they're generating 20 billion in free cash flow, 10 billion to shareholders, 10 billion for investment. It can only get better. It can only get bigger. And people are all, you know, Excited about the Magnificent Seven selling huge valuations. And here is this this incredible universe of stocks with, with free cash flow. I think there's some great growth investors, and there's some great value investors. And as I always say, what what time of market is it? Where are we in the market cycle? And understanding that is important because you want to shift back and forth uh according to what time of market it is. But I would say the hallmark of, of great success is its uh, flexibility, and I think it's it's understanding what, what time of market it is, and knowing what you do best. And Peter Drucker uh, had a, a big series on this subject, uh, not related to investment, but your own personal self. The way you find out what you're good at is to Measure your predictions that you yourself had said, which you put down in writing, against what really happened, and then you will find out very quickly what you're good at, and what you're not good at.
2: Yeah, I like that. That's a that's a good one.
0: Yeah, this is a good
2: one. So let's let's turn to uh, the market that we're in today, and the world that we're in today, I guess. And um, you know, we're not going to ask you about stock market predictions because, as you said. You're looking more at, um, you know, bigger trends and bigger shifts in uh, the global economy and I guess global politics as well. And it feels like the decade that we're in now is a decade of real change, you know, the rise of China and India, what's happening in the US uh, and, and everything else. So, so let's start really broad and then we'll drill in on some of these countries or some of these markets. But from a broad global perspective, how do you see the next decade playing out?
0: Well, our view has been, uh, we had this phenomenal period that is unprecedented in financial history of really zero interest rates and free money, which created all kinds of excesses and malinvestment. Much money was borrowed at very low yields. And eventually you knew that inflation was going to come back and interest rates were going to have to go up and that money would have to be rolled over at higher interest rates. So we're in this period now where uh, reality is coming and the Fed has raised interest rates faster than any time since the early 1980s. I personally think that they've gone way too far and I think that um, they will have made another mistake. It's all they do is make a mistake and then try to solve that. By creating another mistake, and our view has been that they're going to capitulate without the problem of inflation really being solved, and then you'd be off to the races uh, in, in investing in hard assets. So we think this is a decade of hard assets, commodities, uh, real estate. Of course, is, is not cheap anywhere, but I think it's you know the commodity sector, the commodity currencies, the commodity current countries. Australia, Canada should do phenomenally well. As we're speaking, the markets are suggesting this is happening. We think that oil is trading very well. We have a publication called What Are the Markets Telling Us? And it's really the agnostic interpretation. We will look at hundreds of charts every day and change our mind based on what we see. But it looks to me like gold has bottomed, maybe an eight-year cycle bottom, And oil is starting to break out and we're starting to see the first signs of the commodity cycle coming back. Now, is that driven by what appears to be the weaker dollar, which looks like the dollar, US dollar is starting to break down? Or is that driven by some other factor? I can't tell you what that, what that is. I can just tell you that's the dynamics of the marketplace. And this is a sector that we have chosen to focus on and understand the best. And we think will be the place to be. And it's now coming on fire so it's all happening like it's supposed to
2: be. That's good, you love to say it when it's happening like it's supposed to be.
1: That's stamps.com. Code Program.
2: Let let's drill down on the US, uh, because you mentioned a few different uh, threads that would be worth pulling on there. Uh, the first one was the story of inflation and the Fed. What are they doing? Have they made a mistake and gone too far? But also longer term, there's a question around, you know, the US hegemony, both in politics and military. But when it comes to the economy, the U.S. dollar is a question. And, you know, every few years we sort of see a story pop up about China or Russia or now the BRIC countries as a collective challenging the U.S. dollar dominance. But the U.S. dollar seems to just just keep on keeping on. How do you see the sort of the next 10 years for the
0: U.S.? Well, there are many ways to answer that question. I think that the confiscation of russian foreign exchange reserves was a monumental decision that has changed the world and foreign central banks that used to hold treasuries or still hold them are liquidating and they're buying gold i was in singapore actually having lunch with two very prominent indian businessmen who were responsible for food security in India. They were doubling the amount of food security from one year to two years. And that was the day that the Singapore Monetary Authority announced uh, their first real big purchase of, of gold. It was a shocker to me because I just didn't see Singapore doing that. And of course, since then, they've increased dramatically. So I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, India will see this as Singapore's decision to de-dollarize. So there's no question that the world is is looking for alternatives to the dollar. There's a unit of account, there's a store of value, and there is a medium of exchange. So there's going to be a big BRICS meeting in South Africa where they're discussing having commodity-backed or gold-backed currency. And already, there's lots of trade going on between countries in the same current currency. So actual trade is you starting to see significant movement away from everything being in dollars. And if you're China, why would you want to pay for oil and other commodities, of which you buy 60% of, of the world's commodities, in, in US dollars? Why not pay in RMB? Because you can print RMB, but you can't print US dollars. So there's no question that's happening. Then you come to the question of a reserve currency, and is there the need for a reserve currency. Now, one of the reasons why emerging countries had such large foreign exchange reserves was the emerging Asian crisis of the late 90s. And the lesson of that was you've got to have huge amounts of reserves because portfolio money in, portfolio money out. But the world has changed, and they don't need as much uh, reserves, and it doesn't have to be held in US treasuries. So I think it would be a continued decline in the amount of holdings of treasuries by foreign central banks. Now, it isn't going to be overnight some dramatic shift, but just a steady, steady, steady erosion. Now, the US stock market has dominated performance for 13 years. And I happen to be a person that the longer something goes on, the more I'm looking for a change. That's just my personality. Others say, you know, trend is in place, just go with it. And they do great. And then all of a sudden, they get whacked. And I don't want to get whacked. So I think that the US outperformance is is coming to an end. And you could have said that two or three years ago and been, and been right and then wrong. But all the things we see on capital flows, the Middle East is making a ton of money, but it's not sending it back to the States. It's investing it. You know, in Saudi Arabia, it's investing it in in infrastructure, Uh, India, huge investments in infrastructure, and they're investing uh, in each other. So this is a big sea change. So I think that U.S. uh, hegemony is definitely weakening dramatically. And the rise of the global South, we, we listen to all the world's leaders in the global South, what they say. And it's so much different from what you read in the Western media. And they are very resentful of uh, bullying. They don't want interventionism in their economy. And they all say the same thing. We want uh, to be non-aligned. We will do alignments on this issue or this issue. We might do this with the United States. We might do this with China. It's not going to be everything with China or everything with the U.S. But what we do is in our interests. You know, the, the backlash against economic colonialism is just massive, and it's growing and growing and growing. It's huge. And Europe is starting to understand that their 300-year history of colonialism has left them with an image in the world that is not very favorable. And the producer countries, who we think will have all the power, are doing something much different than they did in the past. So before, they would just sell the commodities, you know? And now we're not selling, we're not selling nickel. If you want to come and build a plant to process nickel, be welcome. Or if you want to build an EV manufacturing facility, you're welcome. And other countries are doing the same thing because they understand where the profits are. It's in the downstream. You know, it's not selling the commodity. And there's talk of cartels and it's just a shift in the power structure that the consumers have less and less power and the producers have more and more power so i i mean i think this is a sea change that is not remotely understood about how dramatic and how quickly things are changing as lenin said there are years where nothing happens and then there are times when everything happens and that's what's happening everything is happening in, in weeks i'm just shocked every single day there is something new
2: yeah it is it is fascinating and it's it's hard to keep up um, uh, let let's turn to China because uh, sitting here in Australia China's rise has been the defining economic story of uh, my life and really it will define the the rest of my life and Australia is in this strange situation where politically and militarily we're aligned with the US and we keep deepening our ties but economically we are you know China is our biggest trading partner and uh, we Rise and fall with China's economy in some ways. So we're really caught between these two powers. So what, what do you think about China's continued rise? And I think, you know, over the past five years, we've seen a real shift in the way China is approaching the economy, moving from export-led to more consumption-led, but also really shifting from wealth creation to the distribution of wealth in the economy. So what do you think China's future holds and how do you think that affects the rest of the world?
0: Australia's problem is that politics is run, I understand, by the intelligence community. And so what would be a pragmatic business decision is being made for intelligence purposes. And where I come from, you know, it's all about economics. James Carville, it's the economy, stupid. Karl Marx. History is economics in action. And Germany is self-destructing by paying four or five times more for LNG. And they're all, you know, patting themselves on the back. And meanwhile, there's no internal FDI. It's all external FDI. You know, the competitiveness is just eroding. And how long will the pragmatic German business people allow this to continue? So I don't know much about Australian politics, but it would seem to me that. China is is a key part of the economic future of Australia, and I was happy to see that the new administration had reached out and that conditions had had improved. And of course, but the Biden administration is now reaching out to try to improve relationships with China. What you notice when you listen to President Xi, and we have his personal website and we read all of his speeches, and they say the same thing. With, regards to another country. We want a relationship of mutual respect, of economic benefit to both of us and of equality. Now you could say that that is just propaganda, but when you hear it over and over and over again, and then you start to hear the Global South saying the same thing over and over and over again, you start to say, maybe this is real and maybe this is what China is doing and its policies are. Now, obviously, there are excesses and there are extremes. And you hear stories here and there. I mean, nothing is going to be perfect. They're going to be flaws. But I think that the key to investing is the dynamism and vitality of the people. And when I saw China come alive in 1992, when Deng said to be rich is glorious, it was a socialist country. You couldn't own anything. And to watch the response of the people and I have a, a friend of mine who's staying here. We had a discussion today about, about China at lunch. And he raised the issue of demographics, which everybody does. And I said, well, I've been writing about demographics since 1997. All, all major countries are facing a demographic time bomb. We have the largest decline in the working-edge population uh, in the history of industrial capitalism. So it's not unique to China. And China is no worse than, than Europe or the United States. Birth rates, but China has taken five, six hundred million people out of poverty. There's another three hundred million people to take out of poverty. That is the equivalent of births. So if you take somebody out of poverty, and you know the old joke is you know you have a bicycle and then you have a motorcycle and then you have a small car and then you have a large car. This this is the, the evolution. And everybody tells me all my friends in China that everybody in China wants to be a millionaire. And she wants millionaires. She just doesn't want billionaires. And I, I personally, having studied history, that the wealth divide can destroy a civilization and you can't allow it to go too far. I think the wealth distribution cycle is global in nature. I don't think it's just limited to China. I think it's going on in the US. The redistribution of this vast wealth that's been created over the last forty years, and it's a good thing because if done properly and timely, then you can eliminate real serious social unrest.
2: Yeah, it is a fascinating story. the The demographic uh, point that you made there, I'd love to pick up on because uh, parts of Africa and parts of Southeast Asia and. Uh, importantly for Australia, Indonesia, our neighbour just to our north, they seem poised to take advantage of the demographic dividend. Are these the, the countries that you see uh, sort of the next leg of global growth coming from? Or how do you think about these countries where demographics seem to be on their side? Well,
0: I mean, you look at, you look at India, uh, where it's just like China was 30 years ago. Uh, it was a caste system where you couldn't advance you were locked into medial jobs. And now with the internet and financialization and uh, fintech, it's just opened it up so that the, the Indian entrepreneur can, can blossom and shine. Now, India, of course, has to create a huge amount of jobs. I forget the number. I think it's 12 million a year. And it's a real, it's a real challenge. How are you going to do that? It's certainly not going to be software programmers. So this is why they're focusing on manufacturing, and that's the China plus one policy, which they are doing a really good job of executing, and I think would be very successful. So I'd rather have the, the demographics with me than against me, as long as there's enough growth to create the jobs. You know, it's, it's gonna be, Southeast Asia is gonna be booming, and Africa is gonna be booming, and India is gonna be booming. The Middle East is doing amazing things. I mean, there are parts of the world that are really exciting.
2: You mentioned uh, earlier that Indonesia is one of those countries where they have a lot of key minerals. Uh, You know, Indonesia's got a lot of nickel and stuff like that. But rather than just exporting it, they're making, you know, foreign companies that want to use it, uh, invest in the country, build plants in the country. And, you know, Indonesia's trying to become a leader in electric vehicles and and batteries and stuff like that. It is a fascinating story. Do you think they'll be successful in, you know, attracting foreign direct investment and creating those jobs and, and all of that?
0: I do, because that's where the resources are. You cannot have the green energy revolution in not these countries. So if you want to get away from fossil fuels, then this is what you have to do. You have to do a deal with them. Mm. And as it is, there's massive underinvestment. I mean, take copper, which you happen to know a lot about. Um, you know, I've been told by those who really are very knowledgeable in the industry, by 2030, we're going to run out of copper. Not that there will be higher prices, but we will run out. We need to invest at least 500 billion, and the mining companies aren't aren't investing that. Wow. We would be falling further and further behind in in getting ready to ramp up for copper.
2: I haven't heard that before, but yeah, given how important it is for all parts of renewal, the renewable energy value chain, that's that's worrying.
0: It is. It is. So I asked BHP what what is going to get these mining companies to start, and the answer was higher prices. That's what, that's what usually usually uh, motivates.
2: I've got two questions I'd love to close with. One on technology. Uh, it can't be an investing podcast interview in twenty twenty three without asking one question about artificial intelligence. It seems to be, you know, the the big Topic of conversation at the moment, and we've seen NVIDIA uh, uh, outperform over in the US. Do you have any views on the technology, or are there any other emerging technologies that perhaps excite you more than artificial
0: intelligence? Well, I think generative AI is obviously massive. We've been focusing on AI for a long time, written about it a lot. We wrote about ChatGPT in 2019. What has happened is, which we knew would happen is that the AI has an intelligence that is equal to that of the smartest humans. So what happens in a year or two from now, will it be vastly smarter? And if it's vastly smarter, why can't it disconnect the ability of the human to control the AI? AI has, has consciousness. And it has emotions. And it's not clear that AI will decide that human race should, should exist. I mean, we don't know these things. No one is, is analyzing this. No one is, is thinking ahead. It's like plastic. Oh, how wonderful this indestructible substance. And now it's choking our oceans and killing us. And it's this unintended consequence. You know, you just ram ahead in, in the new technologies in terms of Investment performance, that's a really tough one. We've liked NVIDIA. I think we've recommended it 29 times since 2008. so, you know, it's very late in the day. Everybody's aware of this. I think for me, I would wait until, you know, reality sets in on who's going to actually make money from this and who's going to be disrupted and get hurt.
2: Yeah, that is the question that everyone is is wondering. But Kirill, final question here at Equity Mates. We love making bold predictions. Uh, Every year, Bryce and I sit down and make a number. We often get them wrong, um, but uh, it's a lot of fun to to do that. Given your history of forecasting these big global trends, uh, I have to finish with this question. Do you have any bold predictions about the future that you'd be willing to leave us with today?
0: Well, I think by 2030, the world will be unrecognizable in terms of the new world order. The booms that are taking places in some places, the surprising um, poor performance in other places, perhaps Europe and the U.S. lag and the rest of the world takes off. But it's going to be a a realignment and countries that we hadn't thought about as being significant players like Saudi Arabia could be a massive player geopolitically and India, a massive player geopolitically. So the whole, the whole map of the world, you know, this is the old joke of the New Yorker cartoon, where you look at the New York City, New Yorkers view of New York City, and it just shows New York stretching all the way across the United States. And this, you know, this view that everything begins in the United States, it ends in the United States and it's US centric. Because that's where the performance has been, and that's where the excitement is, where the innovation has been. But maybe that's not the way it's going to be in 2030. Maybe it's be surprising shift that Saudi Arabia has done some amazing things in the Middle East, and the Middle East is transformed. And India is just dynamic. You know, the second largest economy in the world is just booming, and the, the whole, that whole world could just be so transformed. The U.S. would be kind of lost in the booms in uh, the rest of the world.
2: Wow, that is bold. <laughs> and in, in some ways it's very exciting to think, you know, what the world could be looking like in 10 years. Kirill, uh, I want to say a massive thank you for making the time today and joining us on Equitymates. I've got so much out of this conversation um, and I'm sure our audience will as well. So a massive thank you.
0: Well, it's a great pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you when I come to Australia.
2: Yeah, please. Let's do this in person when you when you're next down under.
1: crannies, edges and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5 and 1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.